a dissent. A dissent from the prevailing point of view challenges us that the way things are is not the way things have to be. As we explored some last week in the sermon on a brief history of tomorrow, we Unitarian Universalists have often been a future-oriented people, seeking to help build the better world that we dream about. And many of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears in their time and place were at the leading edge of social change. Along these lines, given the current turning of the wheel of time, it's significant to recall that this past Wednesday marked the, what would have been, the, I guess, the 200th anniversary of the birthday of our Unitarian ancestor, Henry David Thoreau. He was born on July 12, 1817. Among many examples of dissent in Thoreau's life, the most famous is that at age 29, during his time living in a cabin that he built on Walden Pond, Thoreau spent the night in jail for non-payment of a poll tax to protest how tax dollars were being used to support the enslavement of human beings and what he deemed to be unjust wars. His reflections on his experience, the essay Civil Disobedience, has been an inspiration ever since for people of conscience seeking to resist pressures to conform to unjust aspects of society. And one way of reflecting on how and why we, in our time and place, might be called to dissent now or in the future, I'd like to invite us to consider the tradition of dissent in particular in the United States Supreme Court. One of my longtime areas of interest has been constitutional interpretation, how and why the Constitution is interpreted as it is in a given time and place, and how that can come to change. So I'm interested in the study of how and why a certain individual or certain groups make interpretations. That might actually be the focus of my second book if I get around to writing my, publishing my dissertation as my first book. That should come first if I ever get to that. Because I'm particularly interested in comparing how and why interpretations have been made over time about the meaning, about the significance of legal documents, um, predominantly the U.S. Constitution, sacred scriptures, the Bible, the Quran, the, to- the Torah, and others, uh, various pieces of art, you know, what is art, uh, and various, uh, both historic and contemporary, as well as how we interpret the shifting sets of experiences that we call our self. So I've spoken about this view in previous sermons, but for to me, the upshot is that if your interpretation, whether it's the Constitution or the Bible or yourself or um, art, if the way you interpret something increases hate and increases fear and inequality and violence, instead of increasing love and joy and justice and peace, you're doing it wrong. And the problem might be more with you or the interpretive community that has formed you and that you're a part of than with the text, broadly speaking, that you're reading. If you're not convinced, buy my book. The uh, 200 version of that argument is forthcoming. In the meantime, one of the many great books from this perspective is called The Case Against the Supreme Court. It was published a few years ago by the brilliant legal scholar Erwin Chemerinsky, who has argued cases before the Supreme Court, who's the author of the leading uh, law school textbook about constitutional law. To share with you just one early passage from the book, he writes that each year as I teach first-year law students, I have the strong sense that many, if not most, come to law school believing that the law exists 
external to what the court says. And that the role of a justice or a judge is to just find the law and apply it um, mechanistically. But that is an illusion Chemerinsky invites us to consider that has no relationship to reality. He says, let's admit that that particular emperor has no clothes. He's challenging us to be honest that the Supreme Court justices are all too human. Of course. And the evidence is clear that we humans rarely weigh all sides free of bias, whatever that would even mean. Rather, we have pre-existing values, pre-existing views, pre-existing prejudices that warp our perceptions. We're always standing from some particular and peculiar point of view due to a confluence of circumstances due to our history. Uh, We're most open to arguments that support our current line of thinking, and we are most defensive against arguments that undermine our self-interest, even sometimes unconsciously. By and large, all Supreme Court justices, liberal, moderate, conservative, they're all pretty much extremely qualified. They disagree not because one of them is smarter or knows the Constitution better. They diverge, I invite you to consider, because of their ideology. That fact, of course, is why it is so significant that Neil Gorsuch, not Merrick Garland, is the latest associate justice on the highest court in our land. To be clear, Chemerinsky is not intending to be unduly cynical. He was drawn to become a lawyer in the first place because he had seen the power of the law at its best to create profound social change. But after more than three decades of teaching, writing, litigating about the law at some of the highest levels, he has come to believe that despite the many significant times that the United States Supreme Court has sided with justice and fairness and equality, we need to be honest, he invites us to consider, that the Supreme Court usually sides with big business. And it usually sides with government power. And it usually fails to protect people's rights. Now and throughout American history, the court has been far more likely to rule in favor of corporations, not workers and consumers. It has been far more likely to uphold government abuses of power than to stop them. By becoming more conscious of the real record of the United States Supreme Court, we can better discern when and why we might be called to dissent. To begin with an even larger perspective, it's sometimes helpful to remember that our system of governance is not the only way of doing things. Uh, Great Britain, for example, doesn't have a written constitution. In the Netherlands, no court, no court at all, has the power to declare a law unconstitutional. In fact, the judiciary is explicitly forbidden from declaring laws unconstitutional. If the, you know, the, what their Congress decides they don't like something, Congress needs to get their act together and change it, not, you know, rely on the judges. Even in U.S. history, the co-equal power that the Supreme Court enjoys today was far from clear. If you go back and look at Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, we could have ended up with a a system of governance uh, much more like the Netherlands, if not for the leadership of John Marshall, the fourth Chief Justice, whose majority opinion in 1803 case Marbury versus Madison established that precedent that we now call judicial review, the authority of the High Court to declare a law unconstitutional. He grabbed that power for the Supreme Court, and they have fiercely held on to it ever since. 
Moreover, the Supreme Court did not start becoming the full-fledged constitutional tribunal that we think of it today, where the vast preponderance of what it deals with or what itself selects and decides it wants to deal with regarding pretty high-power constitutional issues. Um, that really started being the case around 1925, less than 100 years ago, under the leadership of Chief Justice William Howard Taft, a Unitarian, some of you will recall, for better or worse. That's another sermon. Uh, <laughs> Before 1925, the court was much more of a forum that spent the vast preponderance of its time correcting errors in ordinary private litigation. It was forced to do so. It had to take certain cases. And what changed in 1925 is it no longer had to take those cases, and it started choosing cases that were these high-powered constitutional. It's 80-plus percent of what it does. My point, though, is that the system has changed, and it can and will change again. The question is whether it will change in support uh, of powerful moneyed interests or whether it will change in the direction of due process and equal protection under the law. As we begin to reflect a little bit more directly on both the promise and the peril of dissent, it's important to remember that not all dissents are either righteous or vindicated. Indeed, most dissents end up in the dustbin of history, for better or worse. So why bother? Well, in the words of Charles Hughes, who was the 11th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he said, A dissent in the court of last resort is an appeal to the brooding spirit of the law. It is an appeal to the intelligence of a future day. A hopeful intelligence, I guess. Or as the recently retired uh, Justice John Paul Stevens said when asked, Justice Stevens, if you could fix just one thing about the American judicial system, what would you change? He said, oh, well, I would make all of my dissents into majority opinions. (laughs) So it's a good answer. Another American judge, William Hurt, said it this way. Dissents, to me, like homicides, fall into three categories. Excusable, justifiable, and reprehensible. So in considering a dissent, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing something that's hopefully at least excusable? That if we're wrong, will people at least understand why we were wrong? Or is it justifiable? Will it hopefully be vindicated as righteous by history? Or is what we're doing reprehensible? Are we dissenting in a way that is on the wrong side of history? In that spirit, when we consider the ongoing struggle in this country to genuinely achieve peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all, it's vital to remember that in the beginning, the deep, among other things, the deep injustice of slavery was directly inked into our Constitution. Article 1, Section 2 calculates membership in the United States House of Representatives based on counting enslaved human beings as, quote, three-fifths of a person. Article 1, Section 9 explicitly says that slavery could not be ended prior to 1808. We now know in retrospect that slavery did not end formally in the U.S. until the mid-1860s after so many lives were lost in the U.S. Civil War, but that's another opportunity to remember that it didn't have to be that way. As a point of comparison, England, by act of parliament, abolished slavery throughout its empire in 1830. Three. But there were, we couldn't do that here because there were people dissenting reprehensibly on the wrong side of history. 
In the lead up to the Civil War, 1857's Dred Scott versus Sanford ruled against the rights of people whose ancestors had been enslaved. This decision is almost universally regarded as the single most reprehensible decision ever made by the United States Supreme Court. It was made seven to two. The majority opinion was written, of course, by Frederick's own Roger Taney. He is literally buried like 50 yards from my back porch, you know, on 3rd Street. Uh, Many of you uh, likely followed the saga of removing the bust of Tawny from in front of the uh, Frederick City Hall, which finally happened in March of this year. (laughs) Yes, indeed, indeed. If you have not read, how many of you have read Mitch Landrew's speech on the uh, statues being removed in New Orleans? So just a few of you. Read that this afternoon, Mitch Landrew's speech about the, stat, the four statues being removed in New Orleans. It, is, it has been called the single best speech by a white politician in Ray, about race in decades. It's incredibly powerful. Mitch Landrew, read it. Uh, From the perspective of um, dissent, I invite you to consider that it's perhaps equally significant not only to know why Taney and the six other justices who voted with him were wrong, but also to know why those two dissenters to the Dred Scott decision were right. Writing in opposition to, um, Dred, to Dred Scott, Associate Justices John McLean and Benjamin Curtis wrote that we should know their names, not just Tani's name, wrote that most what wrote what most scholars consider the most important dissents handed down by the Supreme Court up until that time. President Lincoln famously refused to comment on the Tani opinion because he said, I cannot improve on McLean and Curtis. Just go read that. Here's why dissent can be vital. McLean and Curtis's view lost the day, but they planted seeds that came to fruition decades later when the tide of history finally turned against the heinous Dred Scott decision. Likewise, we could fruitfully trace how many dissents of Justice John Harlan in regard, uh, the many dissents of Justice John Harlan in regard to racial justice. Uh, that they were largely forgotten for decades until his more progressive views finally gained traction during the mid-1960s and the civil rights uh, movement. Harlan died, though, in 1911 at the age of 78. He did not live to see the full fruit of his labor. That's what we have to sometimes know with dissent. Sometimes vindication comes soon. Sometimes you're planting seeds for future generations. There are multiple ironies here as well, though. Prior to the Civil War, Harlan himself, who planted those seeds that came to fruition on the Civil Rights Movement, he had held slaves. And there were many other ways in which he was far from a perfect ally in the struggle for racial justice. Uh, He was a white supremacist in in other ways, even as he um, worked for racial justice and the law. But in 1896, he was the sole dissenting voice in Plessy versus Ferguson, the only one in which the eight other justices ruled in favor of racial segregation laws on the basis that they were, quote, separate but equal. Here's the irony, another irony. Harlan's famous dissent that, quote, our Constitution is colorblind began to be vindicated in 1954 with Brown versus the Board of Education. But that same logic that our Constitution is colorblind has in recent decades been used against racial justice programs like affirmative action, as if there were no difference between using race as a factor to discriminate against people of color and using race as a factor to achieve racial justice. 
It's just a lie, the way that has been interpreted, very cynical. There's so much more I'd like to say about the history of dissent in general and at the Supreme Court in particular. Uh, But let me begin to move toward my conclusion by inviting you to consider that the following are two among many possible dissents we could talk about that you should be keeping track of. The first, earlier I quoted the recently retired Justice Stevens. He wrote a powerful dissent against the 2010 case, Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission, which ruled that corporations are people. You know, if you were wanting to make a version of how do we get to George Orwell's 1984, one little plot point toward the beginning might be a Supreme Court ruling that corporations are people. That's how you, you know, that's the, that's the brick road to corporate dystopia. So it ruled that corporations are people and their campaign contributions are protected as freedom of speech by the First Amendment because they're people. His dissent may one day help overturn that five to four ruling, which was along partisan lines. I'll limit myself to quoting only one critical line. Stevens wrote, the court's opinion is a rejection of the common sense of the American people who have recognized a need to prevent corporations from undermining self-governance since the founding and who have fought against the distinctive corrupting potential of corporate electioneering since the days of Theodore Roosevelt. Second, a crucial dissent that may come to be vindicated is from William Brennan in his 1987 case, McCleskey versus Kemp. I know many of you have read or read about Michelle Alexander's incredibly important book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. Uh, Alexander shows uh, very persuasively how racial bias in our country's criminal justice system has led to there being more African-American adults under correctional control, so in prison, in jail, on uh, probation or parole, more than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War. So that's what she means by a new Jim Crow. We ended slavery in the mid-19th century, or did we just reinvent it with a biased criminal justice system? Since McCleskey, the court has refused to accept statistical evidence of discrimination against groups. So you can't present that evidence in the court of law that Michelle Alexander presents in a new Jim Crow and that many others have done. That proof of individual impact must be shown, so individual impact, not group bias. If and when changes on the court lead to accepting the growing numbers of studies about systemic bias in our criminal justice system, Justice Brennan's dissent will guide them in how to use that material. It's been waiting there since 87 for us to let that seed come to fruition. Relatedly, it was moving and meaningful last term to see Justice Sonia Sotomayor, including in her dissents, quotes from W.E. Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me. It matters who these justices are reading. It matters who they're quoting. It matters who we're reading and quoting. In many cases, whether we end up advancing the causes of peace, liberty, and justice for all, or merely peace, liberty, and justice for a select few, often that difference turns on whether we are experiencing the world mostly from the perspective of the powerful, or whether we are part of or in solidarity with groups who have been historically oppressed. At our recent annual meeting here at UCF, we voted to approve for at least the next year the banner that you see in the atrium that you may have seen coming in or that you'll see leaving. It says, love is love. 
that black lives matter, that women's rights are human rights, that climate change is real, and that workers deserve a living wage, that immigrants actually make America great, and that we need to support indigenous people's rights. There's so many other things that could, we knew we were open to Pandora's box, you know, you're listing seven. We could have talked about disability justice, ageism, healthcare is a human right, so many others. The point is, for such a time as this, Where might you feel called to dissent, to say that the way things are is not how they have to be? So in that spirit of dissent, I'll conclude for now with a quote from James Baldwin. And again, please do stay if you're able to watch the film or watch it soon um, on your own. Baldwin wrote, nothing is fixed. Nothing is fixed forever and forever and forever. It's not fixed. The earth is always shifting. The light is always changing. The sea does not cease to wear down the rock. Generations do not cease to be born. And we are responsible to them because we are the only witnesses that future generations have. The sea rises, the light fails, lovers cling to each other, and children cling to us. And the moment, the moment that we cease to hold each other, the moment that we break faith with one another, that is when the sea engulfs us. That is when the light goes out. May our choices in the days to come lead us to be the ones about whom it will be said they kept the faith. They kept the candles burning when the darkness threatened to overcome it. give you two quick thoughts. The first is, as I've thought about dissent this past week and the way these seeds are planted and come to fruition, if at all, decades later, it reminded me of an important proverb in liberation circles that says this, when they tried to bury us, they did not know we were seeds. The second is this, and it's uh, in preparation for our postlude that you'll be invited to participate in, that you know, I was raised in South Carolina and um, I heard some pretty racist stuff growing up, Uh, I mean, as you can perhaps imagine. And a big turning point for me was realizing that racism was not just about individual prejudice, it was about a system, a system that needed to be dismantled, but also really profoundly realizing that racism is a social construction. So don't, it's got to be, you know, it's been constructed, it needs to be deconstructed. But the big aha moment for me, though, was really having this, having been constructed after basically being taught to be racist in some ways. I was not racist as a child and then was formed to be racist. You know, So really realizing that racism is a social construction, that literally biologically we are all the same, 99.9, you know, we've just made these social constructions around skin color, right, around melanin concentrations that are um, absurd and yet incredibly toxic. So and to me, part of what this postlude is about is whether one, people, this is ta Coates' words, people who have been taught we are white, right? That's a social construction too. Whether we learn to dismantle racism enough to really see Tamir Rice and Michael Brown and Sandra Bland, to have, that when we see these unjust killings, to, to not see them as different from you know, it's not a matter of saying, oh, they're like my niece or my nephew or my, but that literally we are all one human family. 
and that those are parts of our family that have been unjustly killed. That's the difference that is either going to lead us in the words of Dr. King's last book. You either see that difference and it leads us to the beloved community, or you don't and it leads us to chaos. That was the title of his last book, Chaos or Community. Our choices create that. So as you continue your journey, you have the choice every day and every encounter. Am I going to continue my journey in love? Am I going to care for others and care for this one earth? Am I going to do, ju- do justice and am I going to help make peace? And whatever taste or touch of hope, of love or peace or joy that you have experienced in this time and place, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. So live boldly and with thanksgiving.